Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason, and with me as usual is Rich. Hello, Rich. Hey, how's it going, Jason? Pretty good. Um, so we have some sad news in the uh, NBA. Uh, Earl Watson was fired from the uh, Phoenix Suns after a uh, 0-3 start very early on in the uh, season. Uh, Rich, I uh, I heard a rumor that you were uh, in the salon when you uh, found this out. I was, yeah, as I often am um, in the salon. And yeah, yeah. I, I tweeted some stuff out, but... Uh, uh, what, which does happen a lot when you tweet at a salon. Often it gets, you know, conflated. The things you type, you say in a salon is not the type of stuff you say outside. But sometimes, you know, they they do seem like they are the same, and you know, people can 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 go nuts and run with them on, on Twitter and various other news sources. Yeah, I so, mean, yeah, I've, uh, yeah, I've wiped all my tweets, so you can't find them now. And thankfully, right. uh, nobody screenshot them. I hope not, but you know, it, right. it happens. So. Yeah, and a salon is a good place to get gossip and, and to get news. So you, right. know, you may have been it's, doing it's, it's your Earl Watson yes. investigation in the salon. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. I'm, I'm often thinking yeah. about Earl Watson, and it happened to be on a perfect day because he got you know he ended up getting canned on that on that day. So it was, it was perfect. Yeah. That I was doing my normal just a coincidence. Yeah, <laughs> my normal. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> my weekly Earl Watson uh, uh, Wikipedia scrubbing. Sure. You know, you're, 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 it, yeah. yeah, your Earl Watson investigation, as you you know you. <laughs> We are, of course, planning an in-depth Earl Watson career retrospective project, sure. you know, a summer oh, yes. project for this no you know, podcast, obviously. So, I mean, I, I we kind of just announced that now. We're, we probably should have saved that for, like, you know, something more dramatic later. But, you know, I guess we're letting people know yeah, now. Right, so, right. No, I, yeah, know. I can't wait right. to break down those Grizzlies years or year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> year, I mean, yeah. Are, right. I mean, really get into those. I mean, you got, you know, late Seattle in there, too. You got a little bit of Supersonics. We can sure. wrap around and talk about the end of the Supersonics. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, Play for the Pacers, too, I believe. Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure. Obviously, yes. Obviously, we haven't researched it in deep depth yet, but uh, yeah, it we sounds like you're soon, slacking yes. a little bit on there. I, I thought you had that kind of covered, Rich. I'm a little disappointed. Now, uh, yeah. Honestly. Oh, yeah. 2009 to 2010, he played for the Indiana Pacers, of course. Yeah. I felt I like that was the thing. That? Yeah. Right. Jazz. I think he played for the Jazz. Yeah. He played for the Jazz. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Do you want to keep going? So, you, you got it. You got it. You're on a good roll here. Um, the only things that I absolutely, I, I did not remember the Grizzlies. I did remember the, um, yeah, I remember the Sonics and Thunder and, uh, and Jazz and, uh, and, and Pacers. That, that's all I can recall Yeah, there's a, offhand. uh, there's a Portland year, apparently, uh, 2014. I don't think that actually happened, but, uh, apparently. Okay. Uh, well, here's the reason why he had 24 games played and, uh, he scored uh, 0. 0.5 points per game. So, uh, okay. didn't, really, didn't really do much. Shot at 12 thousand points. percent yeah. from free throw. So I mean, I don't know why oh, that's, that's not good. in history books at all. I mean, I imagine, yeah. I imagine he hit the threshold there, uh, with those I, games. So I don't know man, why, yeah, I don't know why we don't talk yeah. about it. That would be a record. I would say, so, yeah. <laughs> perfect free throw year. Yeah. And yeah. And be history made. So, um, anyway, we are going to, we're going to hold off on the Earl Watson talk. I know okay. we're very excited to share all that we know about Earl Watson, <laughs> right. but it's fine. It's um, fine. It's okay. yeah, we're going to instead look at <laughs> some of the other uh, shortest stints for an NBA coach. We're going to look at it a couple of different perspectives. We're going to look at the quickest firing within a season, and we're going to also look at the shortest coaching since overall. So they're, they're, they're hired at the beginning of the season and they're fired sometime in the season. We're not going to count um, interim situations. Of course, it's kind of a different uh, uh, can of worms. There is actually one exception to that, which we'll uh, get to, which um, is notable and worth uh, talking about. But for the rest of the time, we're just basically going to talk about uh, guys who were hired. They thought they were going to be uh, permanent, well, not permanent coaches, but long-term coaches, and didn't work out so well. So Yeah, and particularly in, in, in Watson's case, you know, a guy who, who has been there for now, you know, a year plus or whatever, but gets only three games in the season. We'll talk about it a little bit. The uh, earliest within seasons are pretty fun because you would think, oh, three games, geez, that's not a lot of time. And it's like, hey, you know what? Like, it's not, There's there's been worse. And we're going to talk about them here in a little bit, but it's kind of surprising uh, how quickly some of these guys get the axe and and even even you know less than 10 is still seems you know shocking the three you know going 0 and 3 and and, and getting jettisoned seems you know like a big shock to the system but there, there are a few other ones here that are pretty fun and, and guys that had success you know the year prior and then this year you know they go 0 and 5 or 0 and 6 or whatever and they're jettisoned or whatever so it's some pretty fun you know pats down history here that we're gonna go through yeah, absolutely. Um, so the uh, the number one the shortest uh, <laughs> amount of time, the earliest that a coach was fired, was the great Dolph Shays. Um, for the 1972 Buffalo Braves, uh, they were 0-1, uh, only one game in the season. It was a season opening 123-90 loss to Seattle at home at the beginning of the franchise's second season. Uh, Shays had coached the Braves in their first season in 71, in which they went 22-60. and 60. Um 
Their best players were uh, Bob Kaufman, who went from one year from 4.3 points per game to 20.4 points per game. So quite an increase there. It was actually a three-time All-Star. So a pretty good player. Yeah. Uh, Don May, who went from 2.6 points per game to 20.2 points per game, <laughs> back to 7.9 points per game the uh, next season. And the rest of the roster was uh, not much to speak of. So probably uh, about as good as you could have expected in that first season. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's it's just the, the remarkable things. And, that, and you see that all the time during the NBA. And I am I used to play a lot of fantasy basketball. I don't, I don't so much anymore. But uh, there was always guys that you would look at. And, and when you're doing fantasy drafts, guys that, because the idea is that somebody has to score on a team. And that's like these guys like, you know, Don May and Bob Kaufman or whatever, guys that have just insane increases uh, in that season. Kaufman was able to kind of sustain it a little bit. Don May, obviously, he goes from 2.6 to 20, uh, which is good. I mean, at least, yeah, that's, that's fun. But then he goes back down to 7.9. You kind of see that weird, you know, sometimes it just happens where like somebody has to score on a team like it seems like a basketball team no matter what is going to get to that 80 you know 90 points or whatever and no matter what roster you put together somebody has to do that or whatever but uh yeah not not much of a roster but yeah not bad I mean a bad uh okay run there but uh yeah it's uh it was short-lived unfortunately for the the Braves yeah, and that was that was a year where there were three expansion teams. Um, right, right. So yeah, there's a lot of obviously a lot of upheaval in the league, and you know, uh, obviously you're you're spreading, you're going from you know, I think 12 to 15 teams or something close to that. I forget the exact number offhand, but um, but anyway, in in that range, so you're you know spreading a lot of talent. There's the ABA as well, taking a lot of competition. So you're suddenly having guys who are in very different roles of very different skill levels, and it's obviously affecting the way that the uh, league, um, even though there was a lot of talent to go around you're still obviously thinning things out to a degree although Kaufman obviously stepped up and was you know pretty good player for a few years actually his career ended um early uh, yeah otherwise he might have had like more of a uh you know, might be a little better remembered, but um, at least in Braves history, is a, was a decent player. Um, anyway, back to uh, the um, Dolph Shays and the reason for the firing after that loss to uh, Seattle, thirty-three point loss. Um, the uh, team's owner Paul Snyder said that. Um, I was a little disappointed by last year, or I wasn't a little disappointed by last year. I was a lot disappointed. I'm used to running a business, and I felt it was the right decision to let Dolph go, so I did it. After the way we played in the first game, I felt like I would rather sell the franchise than watch another performance like that. And, um, yeah, so not obviously a little bit uh, upset there. Um, for Shays, you know, it was uh, it was the end of his coaching career, which was not the best uh, coaching career. He was, of course, one of the all-time great players as a power forward for the Syracuse Nationals, but I uh, did transition into coaching with the 76 and 64. They had some okay years, but he had some personality conflicts with Bill Chamberlain when he joined the team, and he was fired after their playoff loss to the um, Celtics in 1966. The Sixers uh, won the title next year with Alex Hannum. He was kind of considered a little too nice. Also had some critical comments about Wilt before he ended up coaching him that Wilt really never uh, particularly uh, cared for. So, uh, anyway, so he came back to the uh, to the Braves. Things didn't work out so well. His replacement was uh, Johnny McCarthy, who was a uh, scout who had uh, played for uh, uh, Canisius College in uh, Buffalo and also in the NBA for the Royals, Hawks, and Celtics. Um, and um, Snyder had another quote uh, <laughs> after the game, which I, I believe was actually before Shades was fired, but um, the, the quote was, I'll tell you this, we'll never look this bad again, not ever, and you can count on that. Well, the Braves yeah, actually, right. Eddie was right. Yes, Paul Snyder. <laughs> yes, Nostradamus. Yes, the the Braves actually did have uh, five oh. other thirty point plus losses uh, that year, <laughs> but in fairness, they were all on the road, so the home fans did not have to see right. that so, ever okay. again. So, so he always always play better he, in front of the home crowd. That, he met it. Yeah, he know. met it at home. Yeah, so they actually did a better with. Um, they had an eight to eleven record at uh, one point, uh, but things fell apart uh, pretty quickly, and they were. Uh, had an identical uh, 22 and 60 record in their second season. Uh, he was and McCarthy was fired after that season. Uh, never coached again. Uh, the Braves, however, would hire Jack Ramsey the next season. Um, would draft Bob McAdoo and Ernie DiGregorio, and were a pretty good team by the uh, mid 70s uh, before air- various issues with involving mm-hmm. money and such would uh, lead break up the team, lead to Snyder selling the franchise, and eventually them moving to uh, San Diego. We've documented those in uh, previous episodes. Yeah. Uh- Seems odd that they, uh, the Clippers slash Braves would have an owner that uh, was kind of out of his mind and not, uh, not I know person, but yeah, they've really, they've really gotten a good draw here. Like when Steve Ballmer is like the, oh my God, this guy is so much, this is like the best owner we've ever had. Like yeah. far and away, it's, it's probably not a great history, but yeah, it's a long lineage there. That franchise in particular has just had a lot. I mean, it seemed like they're for, as you mentioned, the Ramsey era, there was a little bit there where, where they had kind of put some stuff together, but man, it was, it's, it's been a rough go for, for quite a while for that entire franchise. 
Yes, perhaps uh, things will uh, things will pick up for the Clippers. You never know. You know, one of these days, one of these days, it's gonna, you know, um, <laughs> the, the, the right? Clippers are gonna try at some point. Yeah. Um, so um, joining Earl Watson in the Owen Three Club is uh, Chick Riser of the 1953 Baltimore Bullets. Just very briefly on uh, Chick, since there honestly wasn't a whole lot on uh, Chick to uh, research. Um, he uh, had coached the team to an eight and nineteen record to end the 52 season. Uh, and then was fired after the 0-3 start in the 53 season. So he had 30 games overall as coach of the Bullets, and he had uh, played uh, for various um, franchises in the uh, 40s and in the 50s, including playing for the Bullets uh, BAA championship in 1948. It's worth noting that this Bullets is not linked to the current Bullets Wizards franchise. This franchise folded in uh, 54, and then uh, the the current franchise formed first in Chicago and then eventually moved to Baltimore and then, of course, to uh, Washington in the 70s. So uh, for those who care about that, which I would imagine is a relatively low number of people, uh, that is uh, that is why you do not consider this Bullets part of the current Bullets. Yes. And then uh, another guy moving on to the next uh, little bit here of, uh, you know, the lineage of, of, of quick little firings here. Uh, Mike Brown in 2013 goes one and four with the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, famously that offseason, they had grabbed Steve Nash and Dwight Howard, and they had joined Kobe Bryant and Paul Gasol. And it was going to be a whole lot of fun until it wasn't fun at all. And they went Not to one and four, all, no. and then it stopped being fun ever again. <laughs> and it was never, yeah. ever fun. Even though it yeah. was supposed to be fun, it was never fun. It was really, no, it, really it was not fun. Bad. It was not, not really fun for anybody, yeah. Nash got hurt pretty much right away. Dwight Howard had a back injury. Um, you know, uh, Kobe's kind of off Nash- the deep end a little bit at that point, too. He'd kind of gone yeah. nuts a little. Yeah. yeah. He, he was playing really well that year. I mean, yeah, they, yeah. Yeah, they, like, wore him out. Of course, he had the, you know, Achilles injury, which basically, you know, ended his, you know, really being good uh, part of his career you know chemistry with mike d'antoni wasn't great they had the whole they were going to bring phil jackson in and didn't bring him in and so on and so forth i think we've documented uh, uh this before but um and, and it's recent enough that most of our listeners i think know it you know re- reasonably thoroughly but yeah not uh not a great situation for mike brown but he's doing well he's an assistant for yeah. the uh, warriors now you know uh interim coach here and there so got himself, um, a, ring. Got himself a ring a few days ago so he's, he's doing well yeah, yeah nice maybe, maybe maybe assistant is the better role for mike brown he seems to do maybe yeah that, so. right yeah maybe, but he did, exactly. he did a great job last year with the warriors i mean that's yeah, yeah yeah it's an easy right. thing you can kind of turn the key and, and let it go but you know hey it's not to be said for that the whole thing didn't you know explode without steve kerr or whatever so hey yeah. sure yeah good for mike but as you mentioned um real quickly yeah that bernie bickerstaff he was the interim head coach uh, for a while oh that's much. right i forgot uh, it was like yeah it was like five games or something. yeah or... i think he got just a handful maybe four or five games or whatever and then they hired uh d'antoni i'm uh, like d'antoni right. on november 12th and that also wasn't very much fun <laughs> so it seemed no, like it should not... be fun but again it wasn't fun even though it was all supposed to be fun but it yeah and he, and he was recovering from like you know like some sort of surgery and was like you know they, everyone like had like a weird thing going on that yeah year. it was just kind of a snake fit situation yeah <laughs> 2012, yeah 2013 at los angeles lakers not fun at all no no yeah. Uh, now we move on to Gene Chu, uh, two and four for the 1978 Philadelphia 76ers, and then he is gone. So we'll get a little bit of background here. Uh, he had took over the 76ers in 1973. That was a year after they had set the NBA record for futility. Uh, they're going nine and 73. I think. Uh, what is it? Win percentage wise, the Bobcats from a few years ago beat them, but they still have the lowest win total, right, of a year. Well, well actually, the Bobcats do have the lowest win total because it was the lockout season. But, oh, right. Um, yeah, that's but, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, over a full season, yes, the yeah the Bobcats were were actually worse um, okay. in in terms of percentage. So, either way, <laughs> yeah, uh, still really too. bad. Yeah, yeah no, not still, good. Still, yeah, yeah, <laughs> still terrible. But uh, right, yeah, this is a quote that I found in an article. He says, "No one cared about the team then. Nobody covered it." So <laughs> old school seventy sixers basketball. There, nobody cared and nobody covered it. But uh, understood, they improved to twenty five wins in his first season. Uh, and by year four, they were in the Eastern Conference uh, champions. Uh, they, you know, bringing on you know Julius Irving in nineteen seventy six year health, but I mean, they had a pretty decent offense too. You know, George McGinnis in there, um, and Shu really understood that he had you know two great players and and a lot of the offense and a lot of the success. Re- revolved around just giving those guys the ball as much as possible, giving Julius Irving in his prime uh, the ball and George McGinnis as well, um, going one-on-one against you know, defenders. They were both you know v- great players that could get to the basket and score at, at, almost at will. So she made the good idea of, you know, hey, let's let's give these guys the ball a lot. Uh, and you saw a big turnaround once Julius came there, and that kind of set the stage for, for what would happen then. Uh, and then they made the NBA Finals, as mentioned, um, you know, in that year four. They lost to Bill Walden in the breaks of the game, Portland Trailblazers, in six games. Um, but then he comes back the next year and he says, uh, you know, he goes two and four and then he gets fired. Uh, a lot of quotes though about this. And it was kind of fun to kind of read a little bit about this and, and, and similar to, 
some people are going to talk about before. I mean, obviously Shays was was one. You know, I, I, after one game, he was sent away. But Shu was kind of similar as well in that same sense, where uh, him and his owner never really seemed to see eye to eye. Uh, Shu, after he was fired, said, "Obviously, I was I wasn't fired for basketball reasons. A lot of other things were going on. It's really hard to nail down the exact reason why. Nobody really says this is why he was fired. But uh, there's an SI Vault article from 1977 that says uh, Sixers owner Fitz Dixon whispered to a Philadelphia newspaper that he might fire Shu. That was on November 1st. Uh, for and then this the writer I forgot." Damn, I, I wish I had the writer here. It goes really in on, on Dixon. I I don't know yeah, much it was, about. Uh, do you, it do was, you know much about Fitz because this this guy goes goes in. On... Yeah, uh, the writer was Curry Kirkpatrick, by the way. But um, yeah, I don't okay. actually know right, that much right. about uh, you know Fitz Dixon because he was right before Harold Katz. I think was he was after um, Irv Kozlov. I, I I there may have been some in between there, but um, yeah, honestly, I I don't know a whole lot about uh, Fitz. He didn't come up during our. Uh, uh, research on 70s wacky owners which maybe he should have uh, given, yeah he probably uh, should have yeah yes <laughs> read yeah. this article uh here's a little bit of the quotes from it for, uh, for all of his mainline milquetoast manner dixon is a power wielder who permits no photographers or vendors to work near him at courtside in the spectrum and orders guards to keep spectators from passing in front of his front row seat when two reporters approached him on the night after the big leak the leak that he was going to fire shoe uh, dixon instructed a member of the personal security force to boot them out which they did later that evening after watching the Chicago Bulls beat his dead-in-the-water team, Dixon decided to fire Shu. So uh, some other you know thoughts in this SI Vault article, apart from the lack of communication with the team, Shu's biggest shortcoming was his inability to get along with the owner. After one defeat last year, Dixon embarrassed Shu in front of the press by railing at him, while I've been waiting for your excuses, after which Shu referred to Dixon as that son of a bitch. <laughs> so it did not go very well. Uh, Dixon also did not like Shu's lifestyle, his off-the-court acquaintances, and especially his refusal to kiss Dixon's feet as everybody else in the organization did. So. Yeah. So uh, we, we, when I uh, when I got a chance to interview uh, Julius Irving in, in in his book, like the one guy that he is like somewhat critical, and of course you know he's really nice and doesn't really rip on people even if he disagrees with them. But the one guy who he was kind of a little bit disparaging about was Gene Shue and thinking like you know just Gene didn't really have it as a tactical coach to keep up with Jack Ramsey and you know didn't really enjoy playing with him. And mm-hmm. I, I, I get the sense that it was similar to you know the first year with the Heat where there was a lot of you know, kind of fit issues with um, Wade and LeBron, even though they enjoyed playing together. And it was you know, kind of like, a you know, two stars trying to kind of figure out the same thing. And a little bit was the same thing with um, Irving and McGinnis before, you know, McGinnis was eventually kind of you know, sidelined and then eventually traded. And they, you know, really formed the team around Doc. And I think also that, you know, Cunningham was the golden boy in Philly and was they were kind of wanting there were forces wanting to groom him to be the next right. coach. And yeah, I know I think Shu later, you know, was uh, not thrilled with, uh, you know, the way that that had gone down and it felt like, you know, Cunningham may have, um, you know, uh, been part of uh, ousting him, but, um, or at least, you know, it certainly wasn't, he uh, was actually publicly critical about the idea that the, the style of play they were playing and, and so forth. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, um, it worked out pretty well for Philadelphia after they got rid of Shoe. They hired uh, Billy Cunningham, of course, you know, Philly legend. Uh, they went 53 and 23 under him. They lost in the Eastern Conference Finals to the Washington Bullets. Uh, but Cunningham would stick with the team for a number of years, and then they finally would, of course, win the championship in 1983, as you mentioned, kind of building around Doc and obviously bringing Moses Malone in and all that. But Billy Cunningham, of course, became, in some ways, even more of a Philadelphia legend than he was prior. Uh, as far as Gene, other stuff that he did, uh, prior to coaching in Philadelphia, he led the Baltimore Bullets to an NBA Finals appearance in uh, 1971. He was swept by Kareem and the Bucks. Uh, and then after Philly, uh, she would coach the San Diego Clippers, the Washington Bullets, and then go back to the Clippers when they were in Los Angeles. Uh, and that's where he ended his career in 1989 as well. Uh, and then he became a scout for the Sixers. And I believe, I almost positive he still is a scout. As far as I could tell, they still said he was a scout. He's 85 years old, though, so I don't know how much scouting he's doing, but hey, you know, maybe he's still, hey. still doing it. But it's good to know he's back with the organization, at, at least in some respects or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, that's kind of the Gene Shoot thing. But uh, yeah, just, just kind of, yeah, there, there are often a lot of those coaches where it's like, hey, we need to get over the hump. You know, you know, you get a talented team and you got a guy that's really good, but then, yeah, you, a lot of people can sense that you just need maybe that that new coach to kind of come in and get them over. I mean, I, I look at you know the the Doug Collins, you know, Bulls, and you need a Phil Jackson to just be the guy that you know the team was pretty much made. They just need that next guy to kind of get them right over the hump or whatever. And there, there's plenty of examples of that happening in, in, throughout NBA history too. Sure, obviously Kerr with the Warriors after yeah, Mark Jackson course, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so now I'm gonna move on uh, to the 0 and 6, 1949. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I I was just uh, going to transition to you. So oh okay, <laughs> there we go. So we got to zero six here in nineteen forty nine with the Fort Wayne Pistons, and it is Carl Bennett. Now this is a, a weird one here because this is his only coaching job, and I think as far as we could tell, officially the shortest non interim coaching tenure ever. 
six games. That's it. That's all he ever coached. Um, a little bit of background on, on Carl because it was kind of hard to find out wh- what exactly was the story here. Obviously, talking about early, early, you know, professional basketball. You know, 1949, uh, Fort Wayne Pistons. A lot of, you know, just the leagues and and, and what we know as, as professional basketball is just completely different. But uh, Bennett, what, as far as I could tell, he was Mister Everything, is what a lot of people described him as for the Zollner Pistons basketball and softball teams of the late 40s and late 50s or uh, the 50s. Uh, Pistons owner Fred Zollner uh, spotted. Bennett playing first base for the Fairview Nurseries team in the Fort Wayne Fast Pitch Softball League and hired him in 1939 to coach the Pistons basketball team in the YMCA Industrial League. As we said, very different times here. Uh, Then Bennett is listed as the Pistons' first coach in the pro leagues as Fort Wayne started in the 1948-49 season uh, in the BBA. So that's as far as you know. So either he was just kind of a friend of Fred Zollner, I guess, and a guy that he liked him coaching baseball and then decided, ah, coach basketball too, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. Yeah, yeah, because the Pistons before then had been in the NBL, and they went over to the BAA in the uh, in the forty nine season. Yeah, it, it, obviously, getting we're gonna have a couple other examples of just like really weird um, connections between other leagues, and it you know it gives, it gives you obviously the idea of you know the very much a small town amateurish you know feel for professional basketball in the forties and you know really into the late fifties early sixties before there's you know, before the you know NBA's in big cities and kind of has more of a major league feel than it so it did during that time but yes obviously when you find your coach in the uh, Fort Wayne fast pitch softball league that's um <laughs> that, that that stands out yes that gives me so, I mean I play slow pitch so I don't know if it's quite the same but I mean hey you oh know. right you never, yeah you never know who's watching so I'm always gonna you know always want to give it 110 because you never know if you're going to be a coaching gig. Maybe the uh, Suns will be calling you, Rich. <laughs> you know I they mean, need I a know, coach. I yeah, I didn't play right. last week. Goddamn. Yeah, I yeah. Need to get out there. It's uh, a shame. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as far as Bennett, after five games, of course, Bennett gave way to the legendary Curly Armstrong. Uh, he's not legendary. Uh, he coached no. only one season in the BAA and then disappeared off the face of the earth. <laughs> I don't know anything about Curly Armstrong, but yeah. Uh, and the right. head coach was a revolving door for the Pistons, as it was for most professional, you know, quote professional basketball leagues at that time. They finally found stability in the NBA. Then Paul Birch and Charles Ekman. Uh, were guys that took over there and, and, and were there for quite a while until the team yeah. started to have some pretty decent success in, in kind of those early NBA years, but uh, took a little while to get going. Yeah, they made the uh, 55 and 56 finals. I think Ekman was the coach at that mm-hmm. point because he'd yep. been a referee before then. So, yeah, he they were uh, uh, good for a few years and then really bad for about 30 years yes. <laughs> until uh, until the late 80s or so. So, yes, unfortunately. Uh, although they had some decent years in the 70s. I think Curtis Harris lectured me yes, for yes. Uh, overlooking that. Oh, in, he did. Uh, I remember that. Yeah, that was, yes, that was pretty recently. Yes, in Connie Hawkins, yeah. Right, but I know that I know that they were kind of good then, but they, you know, they didn't really do anything like they, you know, they were all right. But anyway, the um, yes. So uh, so more about uh, Carl Bennett. Is there anything else uh, that stands out about? Yeah. Uh, Mr. Bennett. So he's actually a pretty famous guy in, in, in some respects. Yeah, you might not even know some of these things. So he's famous for being in the room while well, it was in his house when the BAA and the NBL merged. So this Ooh. is a quote from NBA.com. It says, on one of the most important days in NBA history and Maurice Pedloff's uh, greatest triumph happened uh, didn't happen at a swank midtown hotel, but rather at the modest two-story Fort Wayne, Indiana home of Carl Bennett. Um, so essentially, uh, NBA president Pavlov wanted to, uh, wanted was to sell uh, Zollner on the benefits of merging the BAA with its rival, the NBL. Uh, this was back in 1948, of course. Uh, several cups of coffee and a few hours later, Bennett liked what he had heard and decided to take the proposal to Zollner, who was Zollner. Uh, he was obviously a... Um, a big time businessman and didn't probably want to sit in someone's house and talk about the merging of basketball leagues or whatever. So I had Bennett take the proposal to Fred Zollner or whatever, uh, and Zollner liked it, and the rest is history. The NBA was was as we know it kind of formed. Uh, and then another interesting part about Bennett as well, he was front and center at the lowest scoring game in league history, uh, the one that led to the most important rule change in NBA history, the 24-second shot clock. Uh, Bennett recalls the 1918 triumph of the Pistons over George Mike and the Minneapolis Lakers. Uh, and then quickly thereafter, they realized, oh, God, we better fix this in quickly because it's not going to be good. And so that's kind of cool. Yeah, he was there for, uh, the obviously, the lowest scoring game in history. Uh, and then later in his life, and very, very late in his life, he became one of the pioneers of the NBA uh, NBA's D-League. Uh, the Fort Wayne Mad Ants franchise. He was there for their opening day and gave off the front tip. But yeah, he's essentially like, in a lot of the articles I read, like the king of like Fort Wayne basketball. I mean, he was early there, uh, always doing stuff with the Fort Wayne Pistons, even if it wasn't coaching, you know, working in the front office, working around or whatever. And then, yeah, of course, being a big part of the NBA merger and then being a big part of the, the Fort Wayne Mad Ants coming together as well. So yeah, for, uh, Claire, Carl Bennett, uh, pretty, pretty decent uh, career there. Yeah, very interesting. So maybe not the best coaching career, but no. <laughs> uh, you look at everything else that he did. Pretty important in uh, in Fort Wayne and in NBA history. So uh, so good stuff there. Uh, thank you for the research. Yeah, no problem. Yes. Um, so so we'll look at a couple others um, real quick before we get to uh, Mr. Paul Westfall. Um, 
Earl, another Pistons one, Earl Lloyd, uh, was uh, was fired after uh, starting his second season in Detroit, two and five uh, for the '73 uh, Pistons, and, and he is uh, a better known as the uh, first uh, black player in uh, NBA history. Actually, played in the first game, not the first assigned, but played in, in the first game, um, and it would also would end up being the um, the second black coach in NBA history and the first non-player coach because Bill Russell was obviously the yeah. first um, a, you know, black coach as a player in NBA history. Um, also was a, a scout for the Pistons in the 1960s. Jerry Krause, uh, before he died, he was on you know uh, on the Woj uh, podcast and had some really good stories about. Um, himself and Earl Lloyd and Red Holzman, uh, you know, being basically the three scouts that, you know, were actually doing the work in the NBA in the mid sixties that not every team, you know, there were nine teams, but then, uh, not every team had a scout at that point. So they were you know, kind of the ones traveling around and they, you know, kind of, kind of help each other along, even though they were theoretically competing with each other, just, you know, they had a friendship and they were on the road and it, it was kind of cool to, um, hear about the, I didn't know much about, uh, Earl Lloyd's, um, scouting life out to, I, I believe there's a documentary coming out on him um, as well. We, we did do, uh, you know, when he passed away a couple of years ago, we did a, a little bit of a, 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 we did a short segment on our podcast yeah. about his life and his legacy, but there's definitely more to learn there. I'd be interested in, in kind of digging into uh, him more for sure. Yeah. I, I didn't know about the documentary. I'm pretty interested now. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's, yeah. The first to do it, I think it's called. I, I, I'm not sure if it's out yet, but I, I know it's a, uh, it's coming out uh, fairly soon. So that will be, uh, that'll be one to, uh, to check out when we get a, a chance. Uh, the, another one, um, another short-lived coaching stint, uh, one in six, Roger Potter of the 1950s uh, Tri-Cities Blackhawks. Uh, this was uh, his only coaching job, and this was actually during the first uh, NBA uh, season after the merger. Uh, he was replaced by a guy, you might have heard of him, uh, Red um, Auerbach. Hmm. No. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Tri- fair enough. Tri Cities Blackhawks. Uh, that's uh, no. That's not even a team. That's not. A yeah. Team. No. It's uh, Tri Cities. What, 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 what are the, what what the Tri Cities? Yeah. Red either. Yeah. And where are the Tri Cities? All it's all it's something yeah. up. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the internet has surprisingly little else to say about Roger Potter, so I did not get, get garner much more information about this. But we will have a little bit more about the uh, Blackhawks uh, Hawks franchise and the propensity for uh, changing coaches in just a little bit. Yes, <laughs> pretty good there. Uh, now we'll get to Paul Westfall, uh, 2012 Sacramento Kings. He goes two and five before he is jettisoned. Uh, didn't have a great career with the Kings. He was 49 and 112, uh, and famously he feuded with their star Demarcus Cousins. Uh, throughout his entire tenure, yeah, uh, I'm very surprised that Demarcus Cousins had a problem with it. <laughs> you with knew the coach. it. I know yeah. it's it's yeah. it is shocking that Demarcus Cousins uh, would would either just not get along with a coach or or at some time, you know, just just yeah, it's just strange. That's model citizen through and through. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Westfall. I mean, Westfall probably had his own issues as well with the uh, team. And this is from. Um, uh, some articles from the time of his firing from ESPN.com. Uh, it's about the Cousins Westfall spat showing no resolutions. Kings owners Joe and Gavin uh, Maloof decided to take action instead of trading away a promising young big man. They made Westfall the first firing of the lockout shortened season. So uh, this kind of went to a, it came to a head pretty quickly as well. A few days prior to the firing, uh, Westfall released a statement criticizing uh, Cousins' commitment to the franchise and excused him from the team's game against New Orleans. Uh, he also said that Cousins asked for a trade. Uh, Cousins' agent said, no, we did not. <laughs> but, you know, that's uh, usually doesn't go well when the coach says one thing and his agent and the player says another. So I uh, came to a head, and obviously Westfall was the one that, uh, that took the fall here. Um, you know, the King said we have a lot of respect for Paul, and he's a classy individual, but it's time for a change. And that was kind of the end of Paul Westfall in uh, the head coaching roles. Uh, he had previously coached the Suns, uh, of course, in the Sonics. Uh, he had tremendous success with the Suns. You know, the first year he reached the finals uh, with the Suns. But things soured pretty quickly for him. And by the beginning of the 95-96 uh, season, he was out. Uh, then he succeeded George Carl in Seattle. And then uh, struggled. Or was it, was there was Bob Hill between them? There was George I think Carl. Bob Hill was after him. Was he after? Okay, okay. That's that's yeah. what I So he succeeded yeah. George Carl then in Seattle. Okay. Uh, but then he struggled with that team before as well. He uh, he got fired at the beginning of their third season. Now, they made the playoffs a few times, but, you know, obviously they were used to success and really wanted that team to be, you know, in the running for the Western Conference Championship and, and, and in the late years of Carl. And then, of course, under uh, Westfall, it just didn't happen. Uh, and then this is my favorite fun fact about Paul Westfall. And he bounced around a few times after this, too, and I think he's still... I don't know if he's still on an NBA bench as well, but I know he was on Brooklyn's bench a few years ago, uh, I think under Avery Johnson. I, I don't know what he's doing right now, but this is my favorite fun fact about him, though, is that um, he served in, as an assistant coach for a high school team in Arizona for two years before he returned to the NBA as coach for the Supersonics for the 1998-99 season. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I just... 
I, I did he get a stipend? Did he just do it as a yeah. favor to somebody? I'm like, just, the, yeah, and he's the assistant. That's the best part. It's like you know, I took like the Suns to the NBA Finals like four years ago, and now I have to have to be the assistant coach for a high school team. Like, yeah, I probably did it for you know. I don't remember. Did he have like a kid on the team? Or, I don't know. That's um, why I, I couldn't find out like what the other details. I just found that out, and I was like, oh, all right, cool. Like, I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of fun. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd be I'd like to be in high school and be coached by Paul Westphal. Like, hey, yeah, how's it going? he was. Uh, he, by the way, he was Lionel Howens' assistant in. Uh, that's Brooklyn. okay. So, sorry yes yeah there you go uh, i got my know. wrong rotation of brooklyn nets coaches <laughs> yes so um cycle of bad brooklyn nets coaches i, I apologize yes uh, he also coached pepperdine university i forgot about that he coached in college yeah, did yeah. not yeah so um he did grand so, valley state university too i think that was his first run or whatever in arizona because he had been kind of an arizona guy for, for a long time obviously right um, yeah and then moved up from there and then went to the Suns and stuff. But, no, he seems like a guy – I don't know if he's on a bench anymore, but he's a guy that always pops up. Like, you're just like, oh, yeah, that's Paul Westfall. Like, yeah, I just remember seeing him on benches all the time. I think he was in, he was in Dallas for a year or two uh, as well, just kind of always. Or maybe that's where I thought Avery Johnson. I think maybe it was with uh, Avery Johnson in Dallas. I, I, I don't know exactly. But uh, he's always been on NBA benches, you know, one way or another. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if he is anymore, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, he was a three-time All-NBA first team and one-time All-NBA second team. That's more than player. I would have yeah. expected <laughs> yeah. for him. Yeah, I, you know, he didn't quite. I mean, he's not in the Hall of Fame, although he definitely has the case. He didn't maybe is a little short on the longevity, but um, yeah, he was really good. So um, anyway, I, I was, uh, I was, you know, I knew he was really good, but I was surprised at three first team All NBA. Yeah, that's a fairly there's a fairly short number of players who have that many, you know. So anyway, uh, fun times. So so we have uh, we got Jack Ramsey of the uh, of the '89 Indiana Pacers uh, started uh, 0-7. Do you want to take this one or should I? Take yeah, this yeah. One? No, I can grab this one. So uh, All right, sure. he took over as coach, of course, from the '86-'87 uh, season for the Indiana Pacers. Uh, the Pacers were pretty destined at this point. They really were. I mean, they really were a destined team <laughs> ever since they kind of came into the NBA. You know what? We've talked about them a lot as one of the, you know the the big time franchises of the ABA, one of the more successful franchises of the ABA. Once you get to the NBA, it really it, it kind of all soured really quickly. Uh, they had a first round playoff exit in 1981. And then after that, they really they, they hadn't reached the playoffs, and they really had a tough time even scraping near 500. Uh, Ramsey coached them to their second winning record as an NBA team. He got them to 500 and into the playoffs um, his first year. Uh, the following season, they stumbled a little bit. They fell to 38 and 44. And the next season, after an 0 7 start, uh, Ramsey resigned as Pacers coach. And it seemed like it was just kind of thing where he was just like, it, there wasn't really any hard feelings. It was just kind of hey, you know, things aren't kind of working out here. It's whatever. And it's Jack, it's, it's Jack Ramsey, so you knew it wasn't going to be like he's not going to throw a bunch of tables and throw people under the bus. It's he's a classy man, <laughs> you know. Doctor Jack isn't yeah. just going to you know he's going to go out and with grace or whatever. And that, that's all yeah. he did really. He might it's, sweat it's, a lot, but he's not going to yeah, exactly. you know, get mad, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, sweat through yeah, sweat through his shoes, but yes, yeah, yeah. no, and that you know, well, referees Man, are a sweater. Exact. He's yeah. a nice guy to people. <laughs> referees, right? Those guys, those guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, but other. Other, uh, other career highlights for Jack, of course. Um, longtime NBA coach with, with Philadelphia, Buffalo, and then most notably Portland. He led them to an NBA championship in his first season. I stayed there for 10 years, but could never really replicate the success of that first year. Uh, and then after his coaching career, after this uh, Pistons run, he became one of the preeminent voices of the NBA, both on radio and television. One of my favorite uh, commentators of all time. And then sadly passed away uh, from cancer. Uh, in April 2014, but how did it work out for the Pacers? Uh, not great. In the first year, Mel Daniels, I did, I did not even know this, but Mel Daniels was coaching uh, the Pacers for two, two games. They, they lost both, so that didn't go very well. Uh, they brought back George Irvine, who was a coach uh, with them throughout the 80s. Uh, he came back, he went 6-17, and 17, so he didn't really help much either. Uh, then the following season, they went to Dick Versace, uh, who had led them to the playoffs then that next year. Uh, Bob Hill took uh, took over a few years after that. Uh, then he eventually gave way to Larry Brown, who then guided the, the Pistons, you know, back to back Eastern Conference Finals, and and kind of set the stage for for their success that they would have for almost really the next decade. Then Larry Brown, of course, would come in, uh, you know, then Rick Carlisle, and and, and just continue. Yeah, Larry Bird after Larry Brown, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. So yeah, you had a nice little cycle then of, of years after that. But yeah, yes. uh, I don't know if yeah, I guess Ramsey got him, you know, <laughs> maybe on the right path a little bit. But uh, yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, just 0-7, but yeah, it, it wasn't, there wasn't any real, you know, hot things of why it had, it just kind of, you know, it wasn't working out. Which, yeah, that year was, he was a little older by then, you know, he was, I think yeah, he was in the 60s, so. I'm sure know, he had trouble, you, you know, and, and that happens with a lot of coaches, where it's just like, you yeah. reach a point where, like, you know, what what worked in 1974 might not work in 1989 with the same players. Yeah, so, or I mean, you just don't have the same energy, you don't have the same, Right, you know, exactly, and, like, and, and being a coach is, yeah. is not easy. Yeah, those guys, I mean, they age like, incredibly when they're coaching, so yeah, it could be a thing where it's like, ah, this is stupid, yeah. I'm out of here. I'm right, going to go exactly. to the radio and be great at it. So Yeah. So a few uh, other uh, brief ones. We didn't want to – there's a lot of these. We didn't want to get in-depth on all of them. But um, 
Sidney Lowe started 0-8 with the uh, 2003 Memphis Grizzlies, uh, resigned, and was replaced by Hubie Brown, uh, 69 years old at the time. Of course, another great uh, coach-churned announcer. Um, and Hubie actually helped uh, turn things around the next season, giving the Grizzlies their first winning season with uh, Pau Gasol, Jason Williams, James Posey, Mike Miller. They had a nice little run for a few years, although they would continue to get swept in the playoffs in the first round. But they regular season-wise, they were uh, a strong team. Finally, some good vibes for that franchise after yeah, some really rough given years. Yeah, given what had happened in Vancouver, just like making the playoffs was enough for, for Memphis to, like, yeah. you know, because it had been real bad there for a while. And, of course, you, yeah. know, you know, moving didn't help it matters either. But, yeah, no, it, it was just getting them into the playoffs was, was some welcome stability for that franchise yeah and that was like the first time in like 18 years that Hubie Brown had coached you know since the uh, Knicks I believe in the mid 80s right so, yeah, uh, so yeah so it was, it was weird to go back to him but it ended up working out you know pretty well uh next uh Cotton Fitzsimmons started 0-8 for the 97 uh Phoenix Suns um I, I you know Fitzsimmons was a longtime coach I forget he had three stints with the uh, Suns one in the <laughs> early 70s one in the early 90s before Paul Westfall and then then here um in the late 90s um was already a lame duck, uh, decided to rain, resigned early after a bad start. Charles Brockley had just been traded in that offseason. The team had a lot of uh, chemistry issues, particularly with uh, Sam Cassell and Robert Ory, who had come from Houston. Uh, Fitzsimmons particularly felt undermined by Cassell. Um, they uh, all kind of came to a head when they lost to uh, Vancouver, who'd only win 14 games that year. Uh, then under Danny Ainge, they actually fell to 0-13 before they started uh, being turned around. Ainge was just one year removed from, from uh, having stopped playing. Uh, this was also the year late, later on, uh, Ori threw the towel at uh, Danny Ainge after being removed from a, a <laughs> right, game, right. kind of a famous incident at the time. Uh, he was suspended for uh, two games, was lectured by Jerry Colangelo, and then traded to the Lakers in a deal involving Cedric Sabalas. Interesting how Ori completely changed around his reputation after that and, you know, obviously had a lot of success with the Lakers and the Spurs. I, I guess uh, Suns fans do not like Robert Ori for other reasons, but for most franchises, at least, even if you don't like Ori, you would sort of admit, like, <laughs> right. he was this clutch kind of responsible guy, but in this uh, case, not so good. But they actually finished 40-42, and 42, which, considering their bad start, not too bad, and they took the Sonics to five games in the uh, first round in, in those playoffs so we're gonna compliment that danny ainge on a job well done you heard it here first yes yeah jason breaking news jason credits danny ainge for something that's yes there that's you pretty go. good you're, you're you're growing you're you're becoming a, I, a, a uh, better a better person jason I'm oh i i don't really like care for that but anyway <laughs> um mike farmer started one and eight for the 1967 baltimore bullets he had played in the uh, nba for the uh the early 60s also played one year in the abl and also played with bill russell and casey jones of the university of san francisco but part of their great championship team so uh he had come from the hawks as a chief scout and assistant uh, this was only his season as a nba head coach uh he was fired i and i could not find any particular reason why he was fired other than bad starts so uh the bullets finished 20 and 61 so not really very helpful for them it took them a couple years to uh uh, you know, to uh, get better once they, of course, got, you know, Wes Unseld and um, uh, and other players, Earl Monroe and, you know, the other guys that they had Jack Marin already and, you know, a couple of the other guys that eventually would lead them to some some decent success. But, yeah, they didn't have any stars yet, so not to – not great for them. Um, we also have Byron Scott, who started 3-6 and six for the 2010 New Orleans Hornets. Uh, they had lost in the first round of the 2009 playoffs, including a uh, a playoff game in New Orleans to Denver by 58 points. Which I <laughs> forgot about that uh, game. Um, so it was almost fired then. Eventually it was fired after this bad start. The Hornets were kind of in desperation mode with the clock ticking on Chris Paul. They had already traded Tyson Chandler to the uh, Bobcats for Emeka Okafor. And even though, like, you know, people say the Hornets and Bobcats thing is not confusing, the Hornets trading a player to the Bobcats still a little confusing for <laughs> right, me. But, yes, yeah. but but regardless, it's not confusing. So, um, and Andy Phillip, who started a 6-4 and four with the 59 oh, uh, St. Louis Hawks. That's good. I know. <laughs> yes, it is good. But, um... As I mentioned earlier, the uh, the Blackhawks and the Hawks uh, went through a lot of coaches. Uh, ben Kerner founded the team in Buffalo in 1946, along with uh, Leo Ferris, who was later the Nationals GM, was instrumental in creating the uh, shot clock. Um, then they moved the team to Mol- Moline, Illinois, to become the Tri-Cities Blackhawks. The Tri-Cities are now, I think, widely known as the Quad Cities. Um, and... Um, I don't know what the fourth city was, but we don't need to get into that. Uh, it's uh, Davenport, Moline, and then I don't—I actually don't know the other side. All right, well, fair enough. <laughs> they're in Illinois, but they're basically not Illinois, so I don't actually know. Uh, what, what are the other ones here? Uh, oh man, I don't—I don't know. I don't Bentonorf, know. Bentonorf, I believe, is one I of them. Bentendorf is one, and then I don't know what the hell the other one. Rock Island. Right, I think only, it's Rock Island, Davenport, Rock Moline, Island. and Bentendorf. I believe that is well, true. But. I'm glad we clarified that. The only thing I know about the Quad Cities is Quad City DJs. So, <laughs> That's uh, about the extent um, of my question. Yeah. Are they from those Quad Cities? 
Or they're from I mean, what, what other quad cities would there be? I don't know. I've been in that area, and they don't quite. They, I don't know. They don't seem like I, they're from I, that I, area. That's yeah. I, I think we have to drive through that to get to, to get to Iowa City, where my wife and yeah, family yeah. is from. Do, so, does that yeah, look but, like where the 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 quad city DJs are from? Like, I mean, I would assume so. Or I mean, that's no. They're, okay, na- I looked it up. The they're from Jacksonville, so you try to figure out why they're called the quad city DJs. I, I was going to say, no way that much groove and that much incredible musical talent came well, from the you Quad know, Cities. We, not not yeah, to magic, besmirch the Quad Cities. but Yeah, yeah I mean, Magic Y, Vic, we are kind of besmirching the Quad yeah, Cities yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah I, that's going to probably remain a mystery for us unless you have time to research it while I uh, give more uh, tips on uh, Andy Phillip. But um, three years in the NBL before they joined the NBA with the merger in the 1950 season. Uh, two NBA years in the Tri-Cities, four in Milwaukee, and 13 in St. Louis before the team was sold and moved to Atlanta. Uh, ben Kerner, known for his impatience with coaches, he had 16 coaches in 15 seasons, including uh, two stints for Fuzzy Levane. Um, some names you might recognize on this list, uh, Red Auerbach, who we mentioned earlier, Red Holzman, of course, later the uh, the Knicks coach and was uh, a longtime Knicks scout before that, uh, Alex Hannum, who led them to their only championship, 58, uh, Slater Martin, a great guard of the 50s. A lot of these guys were later guys were player coaches. Ed McCauley, uh, Paul Seymour, Bob, Bob Pettit for just uh, six games, did not like coaching. Harry Gallatin and Richie Guerin was actually there from 65 to uh, 72. 65 is kind of when that all stabilized a couple years before they moved. Uh, and, and Phillips had replaced Alex Hannum, who led them to the championship the year before. So after uh, after leading the new championship, he was uh, sent away and brought in uh, Handy Andy, uh, who's one of the better guards in the early uh, NBA Led the league in assists for three years. Led the Pistons to the 55 finals and actually cost them the game seven with a costly turnover. And also played with a reserve for the Celtics in 57 and 58. Battling against these very same Hawks in the uh, in the finals. So um, from the book Full Court, the untold story of the St. Louis Hawks, um, the uh, uh, Kerner parted ways with uh, Hannah. I, I forget the particulars of why that was. I think it may have just been a money or respect type thing. Um, they, uh, hired Philip who had not been a coach. Um, so the things that were an- annoyed him were, uh, there was a shopping incident involving uh, Phillips, wife that I forgot to look up the, uh, particular details of, but I-, I think shopping incident covers it enough. Uh, Philip also would schedule practice in the mornings based on the times that his wife wanted to make him breakfast. So <laughs> I, that, that seems fair. I mean, I don't see what's yeah, wrong with that. I don't see what's wrong with that either. So they had lost, uh, it all came to a head when they lost to a game, uh, a big game to Syracuse, 120 to 94 by a, a Big score, and then um, the uh, Marty Blake, who is a renowned scout and um, had like a early NBA figure, went around for a long time. He ended up uh, suggesting that they uh, fire him and make Ed McCauley their coach, which they which they did, even though they had to pay um, uh, the astronomical ten thousand dollar salary that Andy Phillips was making. Eventually, they uh, they brought in Ed McCauley, and uh, things worked out pretty well. They were they finished that season forty nine and fifteen. Uh, but the Hawks actually were upset in the division finals by the Lakers in Elgin Baylor's rookie season. However, the next year, 46-29, and 29, and they uh, made the finals again, and they lost to the Celtics again, which they would do again in 61, although with a different coach at uh, that point because I guess McCauley was tired of uh, being coach or Ben Kerner was tired of McCauley or whatever happened um, there. Um, so, yeah, a, a couple others that are um, – that, that are I among have, the uh, short updates on the Quad Cities, by the way, if you want. Oh, the Quad. Okay, so yeah. Just, just quad to, set the, to set the record straight right. for Quad City. Okay. Quad. All right. Uh, Davenport, Bettendorf, Rock Island, Moline, and East Moline. They're actually five cities now. But five. Okay. So it's very, very confusing. Would that be the Quint? <laughs> would that be the Quint cities? Or I, I, yeah, I guess it's too confusing. They've made so many T-shirts. So, um, but there you go. Um, and as far as the Quad City DJs, and this is this is a quote here. It says. Uh, so okay. people get it confused. They are not Quad Cities DJs. They are four city DJs. So they are a quad of city DJs. Does that make sense? I, so there's four DJs I, that live in the city. That, that just blew my mind, kind of, to be <laughs> they're honest. Not, they're not the quad like, cities DJs. They're, they're the they are, quad okay. city DJs. They are a quad of city DJs. Yeah, exactly. There you go. So, um, yeah, mind, mind blown. So there you go. Yeah, that's... Um, so next I time you spend... give the Quad Cities credit for the Quad City DJs, remember that's not what it is. So yeah, well you know, I, as I mentioned, my wife is from Iowa, and I often joke with her that the best thing that ever came from Iowa is the Quad City DJs. <laughs> yeah, so. You weren't wrong until today, but now you <laughs> yes, know. Now I don't think my... nothing good that came from Iowa. So yeah, I, I'm lucky that she doesn't listen to this podcast, so she doesn't have to ever know that. <laughs> except so for your I... wife, except for your wife, of course, is one of the greatest things to come out of Iowa, if not oh, the well, greatest. But... Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, I've. You know, I, I, I know that that was implied, so I'm not going to be mad at you for saying that. Yes, but, of course. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, so so finishing up the uh, the coaches, uh, Paul Westhead had uh, started seven and four with the '82 Lakers, but was feeding with Magic Johnson. We covered this all in a, a previous episode. Uh, that came to a head with Magic uh, demanding a trade, although really understanding that they were just going to fire Paul Westhead, which they did. And Pat Riley took over, and everything was magical. Uh, Kevin McHale with the 2016 Rockets was fired after a four and seven start. Uh, they were having issues with Dwight Howard and James Harden coexisting. I think Howard had, or excuse me, Harden had shown up not in the best of shape. Uh, it did seem like uh, Dwight was most of the problem here. How, however, once he was gone, the team was much better. Although Harden and McHale have had a recent uh, war of words over Harden not being a great leader, and I believe Harden referred to McHale as a clown. So um, that <laughs> relationship not uh, terrific. I can kind of see both sides on that. Yes, one, to be so it seems like everybody just hated everybody. So that's good because yeah, I remember yeah. at the time it was all about the that you know McHale and 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 Harden were fine, but it was just that Dwight and and, and McHale had a lot of issues, and then kind of a common trend with Dwight Howard. Right. But yeah, as, as time has gone on, it seems like it's 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 a little bit of everybody. It's probably I'm sure. McHale and, and Howard had their their dust us, but yeah, Harden and McHale don't seem to be the best of friends either. So no, not not good pals. So yeah, I, Harden or uh, McHale's not going to be there for Harden's Hall of Fame uh, speech, and if he is, Harden will probably like disparage him like Michael Jordan did with <laughs> spend, uh, Jerry Krause. Spend so. three fourths of the time just bad mouthing you know people in his past instead of yeah that'll be fine instead of oh, celebrating I, the moment but you know it's fine. yeah i wonder if dwight howard will be at james harden's uh <laughs> induction or, or if harden will be at dwight's you know i i'm assuming both guys are hall of fame but dwight, yeah, you get a lot of hot I mean, takes with the dwight but but it was funny like i think that was uh, on, on twitter that, that last week i think a lot of people were talking about that and it's like yeah i mean you, you might kind of roll your eyes at dwight, but dwight howard's a great player i mean he's had an incredible career it's like yeah. it's obviously it's went down some weird paths you know in the, the most recent years and he's a guy that might not you know have the longevity that other people have and man that guy had a great career for like 10 years before you know it really went off the rails a little bit but uh, yeah it's, it's funny because people get really upset about it because in the moment he doesn't feel like a hall of famer but man you look at those numbers and they're they're, they're hall of fame numbers and he's got a, yeah. he's got a hall of fame career no doubt right yeah i mean he's defensive player of the year a bunch of times mvp you know mvp level player for a few years um you know yeah definitely finals is. Birth with him as the best yeah. player you know yeah, yeah, right i mean the, the longevity because he he has been you know not not um he's still kind of productive but obviously his defense has fallen off and that kind of thing and obviously all his teams hate him and always want to take him away but you can't take away the you know the great years he had with orlando even if that ended poorly yeah. so no, no no number of fart jokes will keep him out of the, the hall no of game, so. no no so and we, we would never want it to be so so looking at the other short distance overall not including um interim coaches as, as we mentioned um ed sadowski ed sadkowski sadowski Ed Sadowski. <laughs> Any uh, of the five are okay with me, so whatever. Ed Sadowski. Whatever one you want, Jason, you go with yes. that. Yes, so. Sadowski. Sadowski. 3-9 with the 1947 Toronto Huskies in the first BAE season was a uh, player coach and decided he'd just rather play, not coach. Um, Bruce Hale started 4-13 with the 1949 Indianapolis Jets. I swear all these teams are real. Uh, he was uh, Rick, not at the time, but would later be Rick Barry's father-in-law, and would coach him at the um, University of Miami, and mm-hmm. uh, it's University, of, yeah, University of Miami, not Miami University, not the one in Ohio, the one in Florida, um, and would also uh, coach uh, in the ABA, also to a really bad year in the ABA. Did, did not do well in professional leagues, but did better in college. Um, John Givens in the first ABA season, five and twelve, with the 1968 Kentucky Colonels. Um, Albert Soar, uh, two and seven with the 1948 Providence Steamrollers are, uh, one of our, uh, Twitter followers is a big Providence Steamrollers fans always gets excited whenever we bring the Steamrollers up. So, uh, here we go. Um, Albert Soar, uh, he actually was a fullback for the New York Giants from 1937 to 1946, caught the game winning touchdown pass in the 1938 NFL championship game against the Packers at the Polo Grounds in New York. Of course, oh, a game we've talked about many times in this podcast. Of course. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're a big fan of that game, of course. Um, and then, and then in baseball was an umpire in the American <laughs> league from 1950, to 1974 was the first base umpire when Don Larson pitched his world series perfect game in 1956. So Albert accomplished Soar. in yeah. all three sport. It really yeah. ba- basketball is the, the worst of those by, by <laughs> no, far. The other ones, he, it's a, a lot better. Life. That's a life, yeah. man. That's an yeah. exhausting life, just being everything. Like that's... He he really soared, you might say. <laughs> it's Sportsman 101 right there. It's like, yeah. Did it all. I mean, that, that's I, I do pine for those days when your your former NBA coaches are, you know, umpires in baseball. But, you know, one day, maybe again. Yes, but... yes. 
uh, so next we have uh, Jerry Tarkanian, the Shark, uh, yeah. nine and eleven, starting off with the '93 San Antonio Spurs. Of course, you know, he had a great college coach at UNLV, including the 1990 championship with Larry Johnson, Stacey Ogman, Greg Anthony. For the kids out there, man, that UNLV team was, like, really, really awesome and really, like, dominant and incredibly, like, kind of formative for their uh, time. But he left UNLV amid some scandals soon after, ended up with the Spurs. Um, They had injuries to Willie Anderson and Terry Cummings, plus it lost uh, Rod Strickland to Portland. So lacking uh, some good port. Guard, some good point guard options there. Tarkanian ha- had to use uh, some not ideal lineups, um, including rookie forward Lloyd Sweepy Daniels in the backcourt. Daniels was actually a one-time UNLV protege whose college recruitment had added to Tarkanian's troubles with the NCAA and then his academic problems and drug difficulties kept him playing in college. He actually did okay in San Antonio and carved himself a little role player career. There's actually a, a book about um, uh, his life or at least, you know, um, He's kind of a playground legend before this. I, I don't know what the book actually covers for him, but there there's a book about um, him that looks interesting. I've not uh, had a chance to uh, really dig into that one yet. But uh, anyway, uh, so, uh, yeah, not, not a great situation. By the uh, end of November, uh, he was hospitalized briefly while suffering from chest pains. And then by early the in December, uh, Dale Ellis and other players were complaining publicly about his tactics. Uh, Tarkanian actually sent a letter to the Spurs owner, Red McCones, urging the acquisition of a point guard and arguing the team simply could not win without one. Um, that ended up being the last straw. He was, um, he was fired after that. Apparently, he eventually received a $1.3 million settlement from the Spurs, and he used that to fund a harassment lawsuit against the NCAA that he reportedly settled for $2.5 million in 1998. <laughs> so really understands how to roll up those finances into bigger and bigger legal settlements. So impressive there. Um, at the time, he said he was done with basketball, but he ended up at Fresno State in 1995 through 2002. Um, John Lucas became the Spurs coach in 93. They finished the season 39 and 22, and they actually went to the second round, lost to the Suns in six games. The Suns went to the finals that year. So a f- fairly good year considering a inauspicious start. Yeah, and he, uh, you know, obviously that that the, the the NBA run didn't really work all that well, but his college runs always did. I mean, for for various yeah. reasons, always did pretty well. But I remember in, even in Fresno State, they uh, they had a pretty good run as well. I don't know, obviously not the same run that they had uh, yeah. UNLV where they you know, they went to the tournament a couple times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Ray for Alston, yeah, a little skip to my Lou action in there. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, about not, that. not I mean not the dominant. I mean UNLV, they were like a a powerhouse. Oh yeah, Arcadia. they were amazing. I mean, they they yeah. were incredible yeah. and they were just so athletic and and nuts. But Fresno, yeah, I mean he he, he kind of resurrected them too, and then uh, had some of the similar issues. But uh, he's a, he's a man of. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe ahead of his game a little bit and realizing that it was a total joke and who the hell cares. So, uh, yeah, you know, there, there's no question. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was, um, he, he had no problem uh, gaming the system, but the system itself was, yeah, and, uh, it w- was pretty bad. So, yeah, yeah. And one of the things you know. that, that he always did too is, you know, in terms of gaming the system, a lot of ways was, was taking guys that nobody wanted because they either had, you know, drug, you know, they had maybe issues or they had, you know, uh, you know, addiction issues or they had maybe got, but like guys that weren't necessarily horrible guys with, with terrible criminals or whatever, but guys that maybe yeah. other, <laughs> other programs wouldn't touch or whatever for, you know, a number yeah. of different reasons or whatever. And he, you know, a lot of times, you know, resurrect the, their charisma and got a lot of guys, uh, I mean, there were obviously some success, you know stories that weren't successful, but there were, were many that were as well under under his uh, his watch. So in in right. some way, you know, yeah, he did, you know, <laughs> used them for his own personal gain, but in some way gave a lot of people a lot of second chances that that might not have gotten it without him. That's a very good point, Rich. So next we have uh, Dave McMillan or Dave McMillan. There's a disagreement here. I think Basketball Reference is actually wrong in this case. Um, yeah. But anyway, the the <laughs> I'm, 1950- I'm gonna sell them. I'm at them. <laughs> Yes, the 1951 Tri-Cities Blackhawks, again, the uh, the Hawks Blackhawks <laughs> franchise, 9-14 start. Um, he was actually 64 when he became coach, which I think was unusually old for the uh, NBA at the time. Usually it's uh, younger coaches going on, at least in their 40s. Um, he had been a longtime head coach at the University of Minnesota from the 20s to the late 40s. Actually succeeded Red Auerbach as uh, Blackhawks coach, only only lasted a less than a year there. Uh, it did, did not... Uh, did not like Ben Kerner. They would later have a fam- some famous clashes when the Hawks and Celtics would later, uh, you know, battle in the finals. So, um, so yeah. fun times there. Um, Bob Hopkins, the uh, with the 1978 Seattle SuperSonics, began five and seventeen. He had been 
Bill Russell's assistant in Seattle from 75 to 77, then was actually his handpicked successor to take over in 78, was also a second cousin. Uh, the Sonics had a talented but unproven young core of Dennis Johnson, Gus Williams, Marvin Webster, and rookie Jack Sigma, along with veterans Fred Brown, Paul Silas, Slick Watts, kind of at the end of his uh, of his career, and John Johnson. Uh, they dealt with lots of turnover in the previous year and some chemistry issues, especially in the in the last season. Maybe there's some hangover over that from the uh, from the bad start. And, and Hopkins actually was like a pretty accomplished um, you know player and coach at Grambling. He actually scored the second most uh, points in college basketball history. Also played for four years for the Nationals in the 50s, so he had some credentials also as a coach as well. Um, but the Sonics brought in Lenny Wilkins and merely helped turn the team around. They would make the finals in '78 and win a championship in '79. Uh, and um, and Hopkins died in 2015 at age 80. But a few years ago, there was a uh, article in the uh, uh, Seattle paper, uh, and he talked about how the ownership really was mad about him drafting Jack Sigma. They wanted Ernie Grunfeld instead. He was a big prospect at Tennessee at the time, and um, and then there was a uh, during summer league they. Uh, Sam Schulman, the owner, and some team officials wanted to come in and talk things over with Hopkins. And uh, they the meeting never took place because Moses Malone totally dominated Sigma, and team executives were rage and looking for the door. Um, and uh, apparently, Hopkins felt that the felt that they'd screwed up the franchise by getting Sigma, and then they. Uh, Waited until late November to make the move, uh, bringing in uh, Wilkins, and they turned around right away, won 12 of 13. And uh, as we talked about, they would eventually made the finals. Um, but, I mean, you know, the, the Sigma thing, he was right about, obviously. Yeah, Sigma ended up being a great player, yeah, and, and Grenfell was there. I mean, he did he helped build the foundation of that team. It felt like he never really got the credit for doing that because, you know, um, I mean, you know, he obviously helped uh, to a certain extent. I mean, he was assistant coach with a lot of those uh, guys and helping developing. It was probably another one of those situations. That, like, you know, obviously Wilkins was, I'm sure, the better coach for the franchise, but probably not a situation where Hopkins, they weren't as bad as, you know, they were under Hopkins. They just happened right. to be struggling. And then, you know, they turned around and, and Wilkins was absolutely the right guy for that um, job. So, um so a couple more uh, fun ones. Uh, Don Delaney, uh, seven and nineteen. He actually was three uh, and eight to end the nineteen eighty one season for the Cleveland Cavaliers and began the season four and eleven to begin the eighty two uh, season. So um, he got into coaching in sort of a strange way. This is uh, the Ted Steppy in yes. the Cleveland Cavaliers. <laughs> yeah, yes, my lots of fun. He uh, was coaching the Cleveland Competitors Professional Softball Team, which Stepien also owned. All right, so okay, so I, I now it's, it's it's obvious that you need to play softball. The, the path right. to yes. coaching is, is obviously through, through softball. Now, there are many yeah. paths to take, but who knew that softball was one of the best paths to take? This is incredible. Right. Maybe we or be fullback be... for the nineteen thirty nine Green Bay. I think it was. A, I forgot what team he played for that one guy, but you know, or you yeah. catch the winning pass to win. You know, the nineteen thirty nine NFL championship. Right, maybe a uh, psycho Sid, Sid vicious of uh, WCW wrestling fame could <laughs> yes. you know be a yeah could definitely do. That. But anyway, um, so uh, so the lady maybe thought he might get a job with the Cavs, but then um, Stepians said he wanted a lady to be the team general manager, and a lady uh, <laughs> said, "You want me to do what?" This is from a, a Cleveland.com article of when Delaney died in 2011. Um, he actually he was technically the GM apparently, but most of the personnel decisions were made by uh, Stepien and uh, Coach Bill Musselman, who we'll get to in uh, in, in a minute as his own story. Um, so uh, eventually, Delaney was named the new coach, replacing Musselman, but he actually still retained some front office duties. Uh, then after that bad start in '82, uh, Delaney was replaced by assistant coach Bob. Kloppenberg and then uh and then Chuck Daly was the coach for uh, 41 games went 9 and 32 and then Musselman came back uh, was 2 and 19 at the end there so uh then Delaney returned to a front office role they were it was a situation where the Cavs were not allowed to make trades without league approval during that time you know they were I later did the Stepien rule where you couldn't trade consecutive draft picks and all <laughs> and, and so forth and eventually he was um massaged out in 83-84 and the guns were brought in to stabilize the team and things got a little better uh, after that but yeah not so probably not totally Don's fault but obviously not a great uh, situation for him no kind of maybe probably put in a situation they probably should not have been in considering he was coaching right. a, a softball team and, and, right know, yes. instead of you know the general manager for an NBA team or whatever but yeah that's yeah, uh, maybe an idea yeah, uh, yeah Stephian man that's we should do it I, I would 
Gotta, I haven't read a book on Ted Stepien or something. That was yeah. incredible. Like, a, he's yeah, the gift there, that there keeps on giving, man. Like, anytime you just wonder, if there, is there anything else we can laugh at Ted Stepien about? There, there is. There always is. Yes, there, there definitely is. Um, and thinking about Musselman, so um, his, I, I believe his first pro uh, job, he'd been a college coach, which we'll get into in, in, a, in a moment. Uh, so he, he was... Hired by the San Diego Sales, uh, who started off three and eight and then folded uh, in the '76 uh, season. Uh, then seven days later, was hired uh, by the Virginia Squires um, to uh, coach who replaced Matt Calvin, who um, had uh, who was a player coach at the time. Um, and then uh, yeah, did some weird things like played his starters entire 48 minutes, and it, it was it was a bad uh, situation. Uh, the team was. Uh, dealing with like not getting paid and they basically the, the squire somehow survived the year and in fact folded weeks before the nba merger which in, theoretically maybe they could have gotten in on, although things were so bad probably not but um anyway he went four and 22 before he was replaced and they the the um squire ended up having like five coaches that year so a lot of crazy stuff um so then, you know, as we talked about with Musselman, uh, in addition to, you know, the craziness that he's dealt with with the cabs and uh, the uh, squires and the sales, uh, during his four-year tenure at the University of Minnesota, 17 players quit the team complaining that he was too stern of a taskmaster, and his Minnesota years are probably best remembered for a 1972 brawl with Ohio State that led to the hospitalization of three players and the suspension of two others. Uh, so, um, although home attendance, this New York Times article notes that home attendance increased from 4,000 to 17,500, which apparently is the most a important big draw. thing. I mean, hey, yeah, he's, he's, you know, coming with the fights. If we're not going to win basketball, we're going to fight. That's fine, eh? Yeah. So, like so in Virginia, yeah, he, he feuded with his players, like a ticky burden, Johnny Newman, who were kind of guys who were kind of flaky anyway, but also uh, Jan Van Berdikoff, who was kind of a, you know, not really a guy feuded with a lot of people. So, yeah, not, not so good. No. Yeah. That's, a, that's interesting. And, yeah. And we got one more. Uh, John McClendon, the legendary, uh, one of the great college coaches of all time, the first black uh, pro coach in any sport and and, and, coach, and was helped inspire the fast break, the full court press, the four cor- corners offense, you know, popularizing those things or helping to invent them, helping I- inject pace into the uh, into the college game in particular. Um, he had a couple of uh, coaching stints, um, pro coaching stints rather, Uh the, the first one actually was with the Cleveland Pipers in 1962. He was the head coach of the ABL team that was owned by George Steinbrenner. Unfortunately, he ended up leaving halfway through the season. Whether he was quit or he was fired, there's some dispute about that. Uh, McClendon ended up being replaced as coach by Bill Sharman, who his team had folded. So he ended up being coach of the um, Pipers. And they ended up uh, completing the season and winning the championship there without McClendon. So not a great uh, situation for him in the pros. The second time around with the 1970 Denver uh, Rockets. And unfortunately, Denver started out slowly that year. They were uh, 9 and 19 early on in the season, despite having, uh, they had brought in, um, uh, they brought in Spencer Haywood from the, uh, just from one year in college, of course, you know, mm-hmm. the, we've talked about Spencer Haywood, you know, break, breaking the mold in terms of being underclassmen and so forth. Uh, and then as soon as Joe Belmont, a former ABA official came in, they won 15 straight games and ended up 51 and 33 on an MVP uh, season from, um, from Haywood, his only ABA year. They also had Larry Jones, Byron Beck, some of the better players that that would stay, uh, throughout the uh, ABA, uh, tenure. So, um, so yeah, not, not great pro experiences for him, despite, uh, you know, all that he accomplished in the, um, in, in, in basketball, a multiple time hall of famer, both for as a contributor and as yeah. a coach. And, but, uh, yeah, not, not, not great experiences for him in the uh, pros, unfortunately. No. And I was going to mention that it's a pretty big distinction there is that, you know, he, he initially got into the, uh, the, the basketball hall of fame in 1979 as, as, as a contributor, as you mentioned. And then, uh, years later, 2007, many years later was, um, in a second time as, as a coaching, uh, for, for his coaching achievements, of course, cause he had been at a ton of schools and colleges. You had mentioned like none of the, I mean, Cleveland state was probably his biggest, like, um, you know, in terms of the NCAA, but it had done a lot with North Carolina Central University, Hampton, uh, Hampton University, uh, Tennessee A and T. I think they're or A and I rather. They're I think they're at Tennessee State right now, uh, and then College uh, Kentucky State College, which is now university as well. So a lot of the older schools, a lot of predominantly black schools, historically black universities as well. And he was kind of the uh, one of the pioneers of, of a lot of those things, like you're saying, the full court press, the you know the four corners offense, uh, fast breaks, a lot of those things as well. So it's it's cool to finally see him get uh, the double recognition there in the Hall of Fame as, as, as not just a contributor but also a coach. Yeah, and he was you know, he was mentored by um, you know James Nathan Maysmith himself, I believe, yeah. and uh, yeah, Frog Allen. Kansas. I mean, you know, he he had just 
Right. Yeah. And I, I have, I only kind of really honestly know the surface of his story. You know, some of the basic stuff. I know there's, he's one of the few, you know, co- predominantly college guys that I think would be fascinated to know more about just because of how much, you know, he did to, to spread, you know, the game of basketball and, and how influential he was in building, you know, programs at predominantly African-American schools that, you know, later produced a lot of, you know, players that, you know, uh, later made it into the pro leagues and helped revolutionize the NBA and, and, and you know, pro basketball and helped, you know, make it, you know, the, fascinating interesting you know awesome game that it is today yeah and and just a little bit of background on him as well i mean in terms of you know obviously he as we said he learned the intricacies of the game from dr uh, you know dr naismith or whatever uh, he was the athletic director dr naismith at, uh, at university of kansas or whatever kansas university rather uh yeah. McLennan, he was not he couldn't play because they were a segregated team so he still went there anyway he transferred to the team knowing he couldn't play um and they would not suit up a black player until 1951 but he went there anyway just to learn under dr naismith it was just incredible to just say yeah i don't care that i'm not gonna win i'm going to a segregated school where you're not gonna let me play but i you know i'm gonna gain so much value for it and obviously he he spread that value for for, for many years afterwards but uh yeah it just shows how how far we've come you know of course in you know a segregated basketball team where a guy can't can't even play uh you know couldn't even suit up it's just incredible yeah all right, Rich. Well, um, this has been an interesting show. Lots, lots of good. Uh, we, we we dug in for some some deep, uh, you know, deep dives into yeah. uh, into into things here. So this was uh, this was a lot of fun. I enjoyed uh, this one. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. You can find us at the Step Back at uh, fansided.com. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher. We're also on Google Play now officially. Mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, our, what are you, you? You submitted us for some other ones, right? Uh, uh, TuneIn Radio. Yeah, we should be on TuneIn Radio pretty soon as well. Uh, so anywhere, right. anywhere you can possibly get podcasts, we'll, we'll be officially on uh, very soon. So okay, if you if there's somewhere where you listen to podcasts and we're not on there, and you would. Like yes. Listen to us. If we were on there, let us know. Uh, you can uh, tweet us at Over and Back NBA, or we're also on Facebook, Over and Back NBA as well. So uh, let us know, and we will be glad to uh, submit our podcast and uh, be on there for you because we would like to be listened to if uh, at all possible. If you um, would like to leave us a review on your favorite uh, podcast uh, service and uh, five star rating, we would also be uh, grateful for uh, that. So uh, thanks for listening. We're back again soon. <laughs>